Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. As the Trump administration continues through its second year, and as the threat of fascism grows, even as perhaps a noose is tightening around the regime's neck, there's also a tendency to look back on the past to see what we might learn and whether we can use that knowledge to cope with what's happening today. One of the decades that seems to have parallels in our own time is the 1930s, particularly in terms of the rise of Hitler in Germany. And I've noticed more than a few people I know personally have found books that maybe help them understand the era better. One of those books is Eric Larson's 2011 In the Garden of Beasts, which looks at the rise of Nazi Germany from the perspective of an American family, that of Ambassador William Dodd, in Berlin. Eric Larson is the author of several nonfiction works, including The Devil in the White City, Thunderstruck, and his most recent, Dead Wake, about the sinking of the Lusitania in 2015. I had a chance to interview Eric Larson about In the Garden of Beasts for a program that aired on July 21, 2011. My guest is Eric Larson, whose latest book is In the Garden of Beasts, Love, Terror, and an American Family in Hitler's Berlin. Earlier books include The Devil in the White City, Thunderstruck. This is the sixth book. The last couple of books have taken two different topics and kind of mixed and matched them a bit, but this book did not. I understand that in the back of your mind, the idea for In the Garden of Beasts has always been there. Uh, you said at one point, I have often wondered what it was like for an outsider to have witnessed the gathering dark of Hitler's rule. When did that start to occur to you? And when did you think that there might be a book somewhere in the future? Yeah, that was always in in the background for me. I mean, there's always been a fascination, the Third Reich, who couldn't be fascinated by it. But where things really kind of got to the point where I started thinking about a book was when, if you will, that kind of background sense of interest was rekindled. And that was about five or six years ago. And that's not to say I worked on this book five or six years. I mean, it, it was about four years total. But about five or six years ago, I was looking for my next idea, and it's always a hard time for me because I start with a blank slate. I'm not like other writers who know what they're going to do as soon as they're done. So I was really feeling kind of unhappy, cranky, and (laughs) I was looking for a way to get my mind thinking about new ideas. And so I went to a bookstore just deliberately to try to jumpstart my thinking by looking at other books and see what books would appeal to me, see what didn't kind of get an instinctive sense of what was what was you know what moved me and, and I, I came across a book Face Out that I'd always meant to read but it was always a little bit too intimidating to read it's twelve hundred pages you know small small type no photos and that was the the rise and fall of the Third Reich by William Shear so I started reading that book I had nothing better to do right and I was about a third of the way through that book when I realized wait a minute Shear had been there from thirty four on he'd met these people Hitler Goering and so forth face to face. But here's the thing. He had met them at a time when nobody knew the ending. So I started thinking, 
wouldn't that be interesting to try to capture a sense of this time through the point of view of people living then who did not know how things would turn out? And so I started looking deliberately for characters. I remember reading Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and uh, it's an extraordinary book. It's a gripping as a novel. Yeah, it's a terrific book. I mean, and it's, you know, it, it is not a novel, but it is as gripping a read. It's like, it reads like a thriller. And actually, as a nonfiction work, it holds up pretty well. So you knew the general area that you were going to get into. Why Ambassador Dodd and Martha Dodd, who are the two focal points of In the Garden of Beasts? Yeah. When I started looking for characters, I knew broadly what I wanted. I wanted outsiders. And ideally, I wanted American outsiders because, you know, I write for an American audience. But I wanted the outsider's view, the fresh view of this whole world. And I started just reading everything I could. I read memoirs and personal diaries and, and, and so forth. And at some point, I can't say exactly when, I came across the diary of William E. Dodd. Read it. I was fascinated. Still wasn't totally hooked on on him as a character or certainly as a as a main character. But... What I liked about his story was the fact that here's this guy who, out of the blue, as he put it, um, was named ambassador, America's first ambassador to Nazi Germany, a guy with no diplomatic training, who by all counts should not ever have been made ambassador to, to Germany. Suddenly, out of the blue, he is picked for the job, partly, in fact, because you know, nobody else wanted the job, as he found out later. So I, I was intrigued by him, but it was when I came across his daughter's memoir, his daughter being Martha Dodd. That's when I realized, hey, these would make good characters because her story was particularly compelling. I mean, here she, by her own testimony, she arrived in Berlin and she fell in love with the so-called, what she referred to as the Nazi revolution. She loved the whole thing. She was enthralled. And I thought, you know, this is something that I had never even gotten a whiff of from my own past historical reading. The fact that the American ambassador to Nazi Germany had a daughter who was in love with the whole thing. And he was a Roosevelt Democrat. Well, he was a Roosevelt Democrat. More than that, he was a Jeffersonian Democrat from way back. He was a yeoman. He liked to think of himself as a yeoman farmer uh, and, in fact, maintained a farm in Virginia while he was also a professor of history at the University of Chicago. But what also appealed to me about him was the fact that, I mean, not only was he as seemingly at that point inappropriate a pick as one could imagine, but he was also very unlike other diplomats and foreign servicemen of that time. One diplomat had coined a phrase to describe the elite members of this 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 foreign service establishment as members of a what he referred to as a pretty good club. And that really did capture the element, sort of the cardinal element of the foreign service of the diplomatic corps, and that was Everybody went to the same schools. Everybody was uh, independently wealthy. And Dodd was none of those things. He was an outsider from the beginning. And I really liked that idea. The part about Martha is that she was not merely just the daughter of you know this guy who became a diplomat, but she hung out in some pretty rarefied circles in Chicago. She dated Carl Sandburg. She dated Thornton Wilder. Well, I mean, she at least knew Thornton Wilder. Whether dating Thornton Wilder <laughs> was a possibility, even at that point, I don't know. But she, she, she had had an affair with with Carl Sandburg. And in fact, in fact, this funny little element. One of the reasons that I love doing the research by myself, I do not use research assistants, uh, maybe I should, but I don't, was that uh, while going through Martha's papers in the Library of Congress, I came across a little clear plastic archival envelope with two locks of uh, Carl Sandburg's hair. It's like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> I don't know why it was cool, but it was cool, you know. 
but by virtue of that, she she was pretty much at the, if not the height of American cultural society. She was certainly involved in it. Yeah. She was apparently a beautiful woman. Yeah. You know, I kept thinking if she'd been around today, she'd probably wind up being a television commentator. <laughs> she, she might. I mean, one reader described her as uh, as the Paris Hilton of Berlin. Maybe does one or the other in Injustice. We won't go there. But she was very smart. She was uh, rather petite, probably about five five two. Very appealing figure, according to the men who fell all over her. But she had this thing that some people have. We we've all known them. Beyond even her appearance, I mean, she she looks good. You see one photograph of her, you think, ah, oh, she looks you know, she looks okay, kind of fresh faced American girl. You see her glammed up, you think, yeah, she's pretty hot. But what she conveyed was was something beyond all that. This real, really appealing thing that slayed men left and right. <laughs> she also was a very modern woman in that sense. She's a very modern woman. By the time she got got to Berlin, here she is. She's twenty four years old. She's had an affair with Carl Sandburg. She has broken two engagements to be married and is in the midst of divorce proceedings from uh, a marriage that had lasted really only about a year or so uh, to a, a New York banker. So she had been around the block. She knew sex and it was clear if you go through her con correspondence that she liked it and did it. She was a thoroughly liberated young woman, especially for that era. Did you always know at the beginning it would be a, a single through line this time or, or were you thinking maybe there's a secondary story to bring in as well? You know, I, I never <laughs> – think about these, these, these double narrative things. I never, I never actually ever set out to do a double narrative. It just happened you know, in all, all these cases. It's the thing that just suddenly seemed to make sense. But in this case, you know, I mean I suppose one could argue that there is a dual narrative. It's, it's Dodd and his daughter. But it's, it's very much an integrated story. It's like, like, like any other piece. Of, of narrative work, be it fiction or nonfiction. Of course, again, in this case, it is nonfiction. The two characters play off each other and play among each other very well so that it, it, it is an, a much more integrated whole than past books. And they go to Berlin. They see a place that's in the midst of change. Now, one element that becomes clear almost as a subtext in, in The Garden of Beasts is the intense anti-Semitism in America and how that influenced American policy? Yeah, that was a that was a big deal, and it was also came as a big surprise to me. Maybe not to a lot of people, especially those of a certain vintage, but but it definitely surprised me the level of ambient anti-Semitism in the U.S. as a whole, but in particular the intensity of anti-Semitism among the most senior guys in the State Department. Now, I'm not including Secretary of State Cordell Hall, but the three guys below him who really had held the, oper the operational reins of the State Department were, were, pretty, much, uh, were pretty much blatant anti-Semites. One referred to uh, Jews routinely as kikes. Another uh, wrote at length in his diary uh, disparaging remarks about Jews in the course of a, a visit he had paid to one of his favorite cities, which was Atlantic City. And the reason that's important is that these guys, these top three guys below Cordell Hall, were really responsible for uh, not so much immigration policy, which was largely established by law, but for immigration practice. They're the ones who are really significantly responsible for why of, of a quota of 26,000 pe people who could have immigrated to America from Germany, only 1,500 did because there were so many obstacles to actually being able to do it. 
Dodd himself was an anti-Semite and made comments about the Jews. Uh, I get the impression that despite Martha's flirtation with Nazism, she had a number of Jewish friends. She had a number of Jewish friends, but she too embodied, uh, again, this kind of ambient anti-Semitic orientation. That's how I think I would put it in the case of Dodd. It's, 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 it's so complex. That's one thing I loved about this period. It's so complex and so nuanced. You can't forgive any of this stuff. But it's too simple to call Dodd in particular an anti-Semite. You have to say he was an anti-Semite in the way that a great many Americans were, certainly not in the way that Hitler was, but almost in a <laughs> strange thing to say, but almost in a kind of paternalistic way. But that led to some very strange moments. For example, when Dodd writes back in a secret memo to the State Department that he complains that he has too many Jews on his staff, and this is hampering his ability to deal with the, the Third Reich. Or, or my favorite, well, favorite in a perverse way, my one of the most interesting moments was when Dodd is sitting down for his second formal conversation in, in 1934, his second formal conversation with uh, with Hitler. He tries to come to find common ground with Hitler about the so-called Jewish problem, where he says, you know, we in America have our own Jewish problem, but we've chosen to solve it in a more humane way. Hitler, interestingly, uh, uh, doesn't buy it. Whenever the subject of Jews came up, Hitler would lose it completely and does so in this conversation. And he says he says something that is, is really important considering the history of all that came came next. He loses it completely he, and, he, and he shouts to Dodd. He says, if the Jews keep this up, I will put an end to all of them. And that's significant because this is 1933. This is early days and the Holocaust is not as many years in the future. And the German people themselves, uh, there weren't that many Jews outside of Berlin. So it was – Similar to, I guess, the American Midwest in, in many respects. Well, the interesting thing is there's been a lot of really terrific scholarship done on this, in particular by Sir Ian Kershaw, um, who's really the go-to guy if you want the detailed, grand history of, of Hitler. But you know, you know, what he's found and what other scholars uh, have seconded is that in Germany in particular, there were really very few Jews in Germany. And, and, and it's important to note that even once the Holocaust began and, and got underway, most of the transports and so forth were from or involved Jews in the eastern countries, not from Germany per se. I mean, the German Jews were efficiently removed as well. But the important point that Kirchhoff makes is that there were so few Jews actually living in Germany that for most German civilians, for most ordinary citizens, the anti-Semitic program of the Third Reich of the Nazi Party was really kind of an abstract concept. I would liken it maybe to how a lot of people today view the situation with so-called illegal aliens, a term I think is a very dangerous one to use, by the way. But for so many of us, it's an abstract principle and we don't get all head up about it. And yet, you know, we've got armed citizen patrols on the border hunting these people down. It's like, well, that's not such a good thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there was a similar kind of thing in Germany. I mean, there was this abstract principle. There, there was the Third third Reich, the, the Nazi party. And I don't want to make too much of the parallel. It's a very different kind of phenomenon. But, but you did have, you know, the Nazi platform was virulently anti-Semitic. You know, Kirchhoff makes the point that for a lot of people in Germany, this was just very much an abstract thing. It just didn't matter that much to them. It didn't, it didn't move them one way or another. They had very little contact with Jews, and if they did have contact, it was invariably fine. Eric Larson, one of the things that fascinates me are cities that no longer exist. And the Berlin, and a lot of Europe, but Berlin in particular of that era was 
completely flattened right. afterwards. Right. So it didn't exist. It was a beautiful city, right? Well, it was a beautiful city, and and more than that, it was a it was a it was a very energetic and charismatic city, very colorful city. Red geraniums on almost every balcony, and the streetcars were these 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 you know bright colored, almost toy like machines, and there was. There was dancing every night at these fabulous clubs like the Rooftop Club at the Eden Hotel, a club called Chiro's, other places. Nightlife for a certain level of German and for the ambassadorial community was was really very much alive. Despite the depression, it was very much alive, very much an exciting world, especially for somebody like Martha, you know, who was unchained. You've been to Berlin. I traveled to Berlin and it was very important to do so. It would be tempting, I suppose, for somebody in my position to say, well, you know, there's nothing left of Berlin, so why bother, right? But I have found time and time again that you have to go to the place where you're setting your book because you will find things that surprise you. And one of the most surprising, I mean, these are subtle things, and I don't know why they're important, but they are. One of the most important things I found was that all the key points of action in the book are centered around the eastern end of the main park in Berlin called the Tiergarten, which, by the way, is literal translation is the Garden of Beasts. Now, I knew that before going to Berlin, but what I didn't realize is how close all the addresses, and again, the buildings didn't exist in most cases, but the addresses you know, obviously were where they were. Most of the places were just within a, the shortest walk of each other and, you know, 15 or 20 minute walk. So I, and I don't know why that was so significant, but it really added to the kind of narrative cohesiveness of the book because everything took place within essentially a 15 or 20 minute walk of everything else. Are there parts of Berlin that were reconstructed? The pattern of the destruction actually during the, uh, the final bombardments and, and in particular the Russian assault on Berlin proper there are, in fact, parts of Berlin that, that look very much the way they, they did then, not this government sector. This is, again, the eastern end of the Tiergarten. This is the government sector. We know it today, and they knew it back then as the Wilhelmstrasse, the street where all the government operations where it became the nickname for the foreign office for the, for the Third Reich. Most of this area was absolutely leveled during the assault, with some very interesting exceptions, though, very curious exceptions. One was Goering's air ministry. You know, he was the head of the Luftwaffe. His air ministry, built about the, the time of, of the action in this book, survived intact. I mean, it's still there. The structure is still there. For a long time, it was in eastern Berlin, but now, of course, it's, it's in the, the integrated city. Also, oddly enough, the Bendler Block, headquarters of the army, also exists today. And you can walk there and you can walk into the courtyard, courtyard and you can see the bullet hole in the wall where the, uh, the architect of the July 14 um, assassination plot against Hitler, where, where he was uh, executed. You know, so that's all there. Here's one little interesting little detail. The Dodds House, where it used to stand, is a vacant lot still to this day, surrounded by a high chain link fence. And when you stand there looking at this house, you can see that the Bendler block, this this army command center, is just behind the house, so close, in fact, that somebody with a really strong arm could hurl a rock and expect to hit the, hit the building. And that's important to know. Their house is in what was West Berlin, but it's right near Brandenburg Gate, so that entire area was split in two. Well, th their house was was on a street called Tiergartenstrasse, which is forms essentially, and does to this day, forms the southern border of the park, of the Tiergarten, which exists today and is quite beautiful. But of course, everything in the park is different except for a statuary that survived. The Berlin Wall divided Berlin uh, probably about 
uh, I want to say maybe six blocks further in. And that, of course, completely separated this part of Berlin from, from the rest. But one of the interesting things I also found when I was there, all that remains of Gestapo headquarters is essentially one wall of the basement of the Gestapo building, which was the wall of the so-called house prison, the Gestapo prison in the basement. And interestingly, the Berlin Wall ran right along the top of that basement wall, the Gestapo. So it's like some places in the world just seem to attract darkness, and that was one of them. Martha and Ambassador Dodd and his wife Maddie met a lot of the Nazis, but they met the early Nazis, many of whom wound up. I was surprised. I did a little homework. Putzi Hausstengel, yes. for example, he lived until 1975. Von Papen, who was the vice chancellor under Hitler, lived until 1969. You do mention that Rudolf Diels, the first head of the Gestapo, died in 1957. Most of these fellows were gone by 1938, I would guess. Yeah, that you mean meaning gone as in, as in out, of, out of office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, th the things that I found so interesting about this period, again, I come back to the fact that it was just so complex, so highly nuanced. Problem is that today, there is a tendency to look at this period, 1933 through 1945, as one homogeneous block of, of war and Holocaust, when in fact it was not that way. So you had this early period where you had a lot of interesting characters floating through the Nazi hierarchy. For example, the foreign minister von Neurath, he, he was known to be unhappy about the fact the existence of Hitler. In fact, one of his friends once said, you know, that von Neurath hoped one day that he would wake up and find Hitler gone. So he was one interesting character. And then there were interesting details about other characters, like Josef Goebbels, who we all know today as one of the horrors of the 20th century, one of the great, most evil Jew baiters around. He was in 1933, 33 and 34, he was a coveted party guest because he had a great sense of humor, a vicious sense of humor. He had a great sense of humor. Goering, Hermann Goering, who was at this point essentially a 300-pound nine-year-old boy, was considered to be one of the best men of the Third Reich. He was considered to be one of the most rational, one of the guys you could actually deal with. He had quirks. Always loved to make new uniforms for himself, you know, be it uh, an all-white uniform or uh, one of his kind of weirder ones that made him look like a 300-pound wood sprite, <laughs> you know. So it was very complicated. Very complicated and highly nuanced. And the meetings, Hitler only pops up a few times yeah. face to face. An unimpressive little man, there's nothing about him to indicate who he was and what he became. Right, except when he, except when he spoke. Although he did have a power that Dodd noticed right off and that was he had an ability to seem very sincere, to be very persuasive in that respect, which is interesting because that is one of the things that – he managed to do over time was to convince everybody else that, you know, he had only the best intentions. Okay, so I so I invade Czechoslovakia. I mean, you know, we're still, you know, there's a reason for this, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so Dodd, Dodd early on sees this, this ability to be very sincere and he also recognizes that while Hitler seems very not terribly charismatic, when he gets inflamed, he becomes so as in when his with his hatred of Jews and when he speaks, which is, you know, of course, one of the properties of Hitler. But beyond that, Dodd found him to be a very ordinary-looking man, although he observes in his diary that he looks better in person than in real life. And he <laughs> found him to be, I, I wish I could remember exactly the term, but he says he, he was, he is something along the lines, he was not uncharming. You know, we see him as this utterly evil character. The Hitler Dodd met was just not that compelling a character. 
at the same time, that sincerity worked on Chamberlain even in 38. It worked on everyone and in retrospect, we see them and we see Martha as completely naive. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what I liked about these characters also is the fact that they, they arrive completely naive. The thing that came to mind to me, a number of analogies, but one, one came to mind when I was thinking about these as people to write about, was that this was very much like a nonfiction Grimm Brothers fairy tale. You had these two innocents walking into the forest, and everything gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And then Happily, in in real life, this accretion of bad things changes both of them. They have real-life transformations in the course of that first year in Berlin, which is when the action takes place. So they go from naive to being in the most graphic, horrific way, having those illusions shattered during the climactic events of the book. Well, Martha, in fact, remains naive. When she gets turned off to the Nazis, she suddenly becomes pro-Soviet until she goes there. <laughs> right. But for her, that was more a gesture of anti-Nazi sentiment than pro-Soviet adoration, or so she claimed. And that leads to a whole, whole other element of the book that is very compelling and maybe we shouldn't spoil. Well, obviously, when you're living in a place like that, you don't know that their lives are going to be threatened within an extremely short time. Right. And yet, at the same time, you talk, Eric Larson, about the underlying fear of denunciation that was going on from the day they arrived. Yeah, one of the interesting phenomena in Germany at this time, there was this broad campaign by the government uh, referred to as the coordination, and that was an effort in various ways to get people to toe the line with the Nazi ethos. The Hitler salute we now all know as such a trope of the era was one aspect of that because it was a very obvious way to tell who had been coordinated and who hadn't. If you were willing to give the Hitler salute, you were coordinated. If you were not, you were in a very obvious way not coordinated and pressure was exerted. So it's a very powerful thing. The unfortunate thing is that the, the German populace was so so willing to be coordinated that they sort of fell over themselves and to, to do so. And this became known by the term self-coordination. And part of self-coordination was to cause the rise of, of these denunciations. Here was this brand new agency established in 33, the Gestapo, an ideal tool if, let's say, you were annoyed at the way your neighbor took care of his or her yard, or even in some cases, let's say you were jealous of your neighbor's success at work and had always been envious or something. Well, you'd contact the Gestapo and say, you know, I think so-and-so is an opponent of the state, and here's why. You would denounce that person. And the Gestapo would investigate. They felt they had to investigate all of these things. And it led to so many, this is kind of a, a darkly comical element in the book, is that it led to so many denunciations that even Hitler complained. He said, you know, we are living in a sea of denunciations and human meanness. This is Adolf Hitler in 1933. And shortly thereafter, though, cracks within the Nazi party began to show themselves. A lot of these guys hated each other. Well, there was a lot of hatred, a lot of fear within the Gestapo itself, apparently. But one thing that I had never really appreciated, and that's the thing, when you, when you look at the past through a particular window, you see the world in a very different way than you've read or seen otherwise. And one of the things that came out that really struck me and others have written about this, obviously, the, the great scholars like Sir Ian Kershaw and Richard Evans and so forth, was the fact that there was this very potent conflict within the Third Reich itself, this division between Hitler on the one side, Hitler and Goering, and the stormtroopers, this million-plus paramilitary group of essentially thugs run by a Captain Ernst Rahm, a former friend and ally, still at this point seemingly a friend and ally of Hitler's. But there was a tremendous conflict between the two of them. 
which leads to the horrific events that then in turn cause these significant changes in the dots. And that's the night of, of long knives. That's the night of the long knives, yeah. yeah. And of course, all this is way before Kristallnacht, which pretty much put everything out there. Yeah. I mean, th this is way before Kristallnacht, and it was Kristallnacht that really was the transformative thing in terms of world opinion, of the willingness of the Roosevelt administration to actually step forward and speak out. Well, you mentioned a couple of things that surprised you. Was there anything else that just stood out and made you sit up, take notice? Well, just the fact that the American ambassador's daughter had an affair with the first chief of the Gestapo, that was, a, that was pretty striking <laughs> to me. I found that very interesting. Little things like just the fact that Dodd, you know, one of the things Roosevelt wanted, his mandate was that Dodd should serve as a standing model of American liberal values. That was one thing he wanted. And Dodd, again, was a very unusual choice to be the ambassador to Berlin. And he really took Roosevelt quite literally. He, he felt, okay, first of all, he was going to do this ambassadorship in a very different way than others had because, of course, he was not wealthy. But he was going to be as frugal as he could about the whole thing. He was going to perform all his ambassadorial duties within his State Department income, which everybody else in the State Department thought was impossible and ludicrous. How are you going to stand up to the sheer charisma and luxury of the Nazis if you're trying to do this on your own salary? And I think we have to give Dodd a little credit for this, but I think it's also a little bit ridiculous. Dodd went to the point of actually having his own beat-up old Chevrolet shipped to Berlin, and that's how he was driven around and drove around to various diplomatic functions. Was there anything that you found out that for whatever reason you just couldn't put in the book? There were a lot of things that I found that were interesting that, that I left out of the book because they didn't fit the narrative. It's not like there was just for some reason they were just too shocking or anything else to, to put into the book. But there were also a lot of things, a lot of shifting sands when you when you look into this territory. And there are things that when you check on them or when you want to check on them, you find that there's no corroborative source. That gets a little tricky. Like one character that I would have loved to have had more of in the book is the character Bella Fromm, especially in her own memoir. She describes how a Gestapo hit squad arrived in New York, and one of their missions, she claims in her book, was to get her because uh, they hated her. And uh, she claims that there was 24-hour police surveillance by the New York City Police Department. The thing was ultimately resolved with the arrests of these people. But I couldn't find any confirm confirming evidence of it. So I, I left that out. And, you know, I would love to have had that in the book. It would have been a compelling element. Did the Nazis start the Reichstag fire? And how bad was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, the Reichstag fire. Okay, this is, so this, this occurs soon after Hitler is appointed chancellor. Almost in a way, it was the Third Reich's 9-11. It was perceived to be a horrible event, although there was no loss of life. A direct assault on the, the foremost symbol of the state, the Reichstag building, where the assembly met. And it provided an excuse for Hitler and his government to engage in this incredible spasm of violence and oppression against Jews, against communists, against the social democrats. And the question has always been, well, it was such a convenient thing for Hitler. Did the Nazis actually set the fire? To this day, there are people who say, yes, they did, and, and there are others who say they did not. I think the most persuasive account is an account I cite in the book. You know, it's like the lone gunman. It was a lone, crazy guy who had managed to light a lot of fires in a short time in this one contained space. Even Rudolf Diels, who interrogated him the first night, had come to the conclusion that it was just him. It was this one guy. As to the damage, one of the first moments when Martha should have perked up was as soon as they get off the train, she's being driven by a protocol officer to the, uh, the hotel where they're going to stay for their first month or so. 
And they passed the Reichstag building. And Martha is startled because she's read about this in the United States, the burning of the Reichstag building. And she looks at it and she sees that the building is essentially intact and the visible damage was fairly minimal. And she, she says to this protocol officer, one of the many things she says along the way, she says, but nothing seems to have happened to it. What, what's that all about? And the protocol officer says, shush, makes her be quiet and says, you know, if this isn't America anymore, there are things you're not allowed to ask. <laughs> and that should have been the first, that's the da-da-da moment. The Reichstag fire, of course, is now being used as a parallel to those people who think the Bush administration did 9-11. I know. I know. It is interesting. And, and I, I have found that now already that this is the interesting thing. People at both ends of the political spectrum ask me, well, do you see any resonance with today? And at the extreme left, not so far left, there are those who look at the Tea Party and get very concerned. There are those who look at even Sarah Palin and become concerned about demagoguery and, and so forth. But then you go to the extreme right and you find the same thing. And there is, <laughs> I was astonished to find, there is a very large contingent of Americans who think Obama is just like Hitler, which I find kind of astonishing. I mean, for both sides, I mean, the thing about looking into this period is that once you steep yourself in the pathology of Hitler and the Third Reich, you realize that all comparisons in the modern age are ridiculous and betray, frankly, a level of ignorance that is shocking, you know, like especially when you have prominent figures proclaiming Obama to be Hitler. The only thing I can conclude about this is that there remains in this culture a deep uneasiness about how things could turn out. And it crosses all political barriers. The thing you got to ask yourself is why are these conspiracy theories allowed to flourish? I think one of the problems we all have as a, as a culture is, you know, at some point you just have to turn to somebody. As I did one night in Carmel when I overheard a guy behind me saying that Obama was just like Hitler and, and was explaining that one reason was that uh, they had both written books. I couldn't be silent. That's the important thing. Don't be silent. You know, I, I couldn't. I couldn't help it. I turned to him. Here I am with my family. He's with his group, and we're the only parties in this restaurant. I turned to him. I said, "You, you can't possibly equate the audacity of hope with Mein Kampf." And he was just so taken aback to have me call him on it. But you know, that's what you got to do on both sides of the spectrum. Just say, "Look, you know, Obama's not Hitler. Sarah Palin is not Hitler or or Goering or or Goebbels." You know. And let's just take the let's just look more analytically and say, but what what are these people? Be direct. Say what you think, but just don't go about calling people Nazis. It just blows the whole conversation. It's like my wife when she she was really helpful with me in terms of anger management. You know, whenever I run into a bureaucratic situation, I, I would in, invariably launch into profanity. <laughs> and she said, she said, you know, when you use profanity, it changes the nature of the conversation and it shuts it down completely. The problem, I guess, is that. We've seen the German people roll over and become Nazis and right. there is of course the fear that if someone were to come along in a place like the United States and things were bad enough that suddenly the American people would roll well, over. Well, yeah, I, th I, think, I think the people on both – again, on both sides of the spectrum bring something to this party and I think everybody has seen what happened in the wake of 9-11 and I think those on the right would say that Obama's, Obama's election is a response to something and that there was so much charisma and so much energy that it evoked for them, for those on the right, evoked for them 
the energy that brought Hitler into power. Maybe. Maybe that's what their thinking is. And then again, on the other side, there are all those who seem to, you know, who, who, who remember, you know, in the wake of, of uh, and we, we should all remember, I mean, there was, there was a considerable slippage in American civil liberties after 9-11, all for an ostensibly good reason to keep the terrorists from coming back. But then when you got to the point where you had the National Security Agency spying on American citizens, as, as has been proven beyond shadow of a doubt, then you have to sort of stop and take stock and say, whoa, where are we headed? But I have to underscore, though, that I have a lot of confidence in America's checks and balances. I mean, one of the things that I took the most, I, I saw was just probably one of the best, perhaps unintended emblems of the power of American freedom to endure, even in this politically contentious area, is when the Supreme Court ruled that that awful church that protests at um, soldiers' funerals, um, Westboro, when the Supreme Court ruled that they were allowed to do it because of freedom of speech. We all hate what they do. We all hate it. But the fact that even this Supreme Court would stand up and say, yeah, but we got to protect it, that tells you right there that we're we're safe. We're safe for now. Well, Gary Wills, when I interviewed him once, said, I said, is democracy under threat? He said, it's always under threat. It is. It is always under threat. And that's why, That's why you know, I guess if, if there's any message that I came across, came, came away with from my own research in the, in the book is that you got to pay attention. You know, there's no room for willful blindness. You have to pay attention. It's like they say, when you see something, do something, say something. And that to you would, I guess, in the end, make William Dodd a hero because he spoke out very early. Here's the thing. You know, both characters, Dodd and his daughter, there are no heroes in this book. There's no Oscar Schindler, you know. Martha does not buy a submachine gun and try to blow away the Gestapo, you know. But when you look at everything in the ledger, on balance, both characters, it, it tips into the heroic side of things, and especially for Dodd. Because after he is essentially forced out of office by a kind of conspiracy of his opponents in the State Department, he then feels free to at last speak his mind in public. And he does so. And he, he warns in 1938, before Kristallnacht, he warns that it is Hitler's intention to exterminate the Jews, which is an amazing thing, an amazing thing. Well, he also saw the rearmament early on, and he was warning about war as early as 34. Yes. He saw that after an initial period of, of willful blindness on his own part, um, he, like anyone else in Berlin, recognized, anybody else in Germany, recognized that Hitler was aggressively arming the country, that it was a, again, we talk about willful blindness. It was, um, to, to the rest of the world, it was a secret that Hitler was rearming when within Germany, it was like no secret at all. There was this, almost this kind of tacit agreement among other governments to say, okay, Hitler says this is a secret, so we don't know about it. <laughs> you know, it was a willful kind of thing. But those on the ground in Berlin, they knew and perceived all. And in fact, you know, one character who runs through the book is this guy, George Messersmith, who is the consul general, very skeptical guy. He saw very early what was happening. And he's the guy who in 1933 writes in a, a secret dispatch of his own that one solution to the Third Reich, to Hitler's, Hitler's government, is, uh, as he put it, preemptive war. He raised the point of preemptive war in 1933. Again, there's so many different resonances, and then Hitler is used as an example to invade Iraq. Well, yeah, that's another thing. I mean, when you examine the, the complexity and the nuance of the period, you realize that 
There has been a tendency in contemporary politics to use the term appeasement rather blithely. You know, just throw out appeasement and immediately you make, you know, you score your points. But boy, it was a complicated thing. And the road to appeasement is full of complexity and nuance. It seems that we've taken a lot of negatives and, and turned what should have been a positive into a negative regarding our view of the Nazis. We overdo our attacks on people. We overdo our ideas of what appeasement is. We overdo our ideas of conspiracy. On the other hand, what do we draw out of that that we could look at from a positive nature? Maybe a lack of naivety? We've grown up? Well, yeah. I, I guess maybe more of a clarity of vision. Let me just say what, what I think is called for. Again, one has to be very careful about fogging the issue. The moment you raise the specter of Hitler, the specter of the Nazis, you kill a conversation and you divert it from the concrete matters at hand, which of course have nothing in common with the Nazis or Hitler because nobody at this point that I know of is burning Jews in ovens in this country. You know, I mean, this is a ridiculous conflation of something where the orders of magnitude are just so far apart that it's incomprehensible that anybody would even raise them. So on the one hand, you may think that you're, if you, if you call somebody a Nazi or call somebody a, you know, being like Hitler, you may think, okay, you're scoring a point, you're raising the specter of something, but really what you're doing is you're shutting down the conversation. Instead of saying something's the big lie, just be very direct and say, okay, this is what they're saying and this is what the reality is and just keep flogging that point. Don't let people on any side of the spectrum, don't give them a pass on being direct and explaining their, their rationales. Eric Larson, it seems that this book more than the others somehow has changed you? Well, this book, I mean, to say it changed me, I mean, during the process, it, it definitely did. It induced a kind of a low-grade depression. I mean, when you steep yourself in the pathology of the Third Reich day in, day out for four years, you're going to come away feeling uh, you should or else there's something wrong with you. You should come away feeling both oppressed and depressed. And I did. And 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 by the end of the book, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was really glad that, that it was coming to an end. And I, I, I don't intend to write anything. Now, of course, famous last words, but I don't intend to write anything on Nazi Germany again. Was I changed? I mean, you know, I guess what I came away from this book with is the idea that freedom is a fragile thing, that while I have a lot of confidence in the, the state of freedoms and the checks and balances in America, I come back to something that Christopher Isherwood wrote in a book after the war. And he said that, you know, you'd be a fool to think that this couldn't happen to you in any place, in any city, at any time, that this is something that could not happen. And you know, I know that feeds the conspiracy theorists and all that, but that's it. That's and but I don't use it as a, as a cause for being worried about Nazis and Gestapo and all that stuff arising in this country. I see that as a call to say, protect your freedoms, pay attention, don't let yourself fall into the state of willful blindness that so many did in thirty three, thirty four. Eric Larson, have you begun working on something else yet? No. No, I, once again, I'm starting with a blank slate. I have an idea of something that I might do, but I'm still back in what my friend and publicist refers to as the dark country of no ideas. And your books, have any of them been uh, optioned to film? Various times, some have. Isaac Storm was once, no longer is. But Devil in the White City remains, has been optioned numerous times. It's now, this seems like the, the most interesting. This is an option that is held now by Leonardo DiCaprio and an outfit called Double Feature Films. So we'll see what happens. And in the Garden of Beasts, oddly enough, I don't know if they would even need to, <laughs> to, to buy it from you because the story is the out there. The story's out there, yeah, sure. But I would think that the story of Martha would be an interesting film. 
Well, I think the story of both of them. I'm not so sure it'd be a film. I, my my vote would be for a miniseries. I think it'd be very interesting. Sort of sort of a very bleak upstairs downstairs. In an email about this rebroadcast, Eric Larson said, "I find it interesting that readers are making their own allusions to Trump in our times. I've tried to avoid making connections, though increasingly." I do feel there's a sinister resonance here, especially now that ICE seems inclined more and more to take on a Gestapo-esque role. Following his book in the Garden of Beasts, Dead Wake was published in 2015, and Eric Larson's next book will be published in early 2020. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, you can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.